0: You're listening to Out of Nowhere, a series featuring emergent brands with somewhat unexpected origins. Your host is Justin Watkins of Native Digital, a marketing firm specializing in brand messaging and performance media. Let's jump in.
1: The whole team that I select is, are people that sort of think that innovation is a force for positive action. Uh, we saw an opportunity back around 2012 to 2014, where a lot of venture capital had been applied in this sort of classical tech. And we started saying, well, why aren't we doing the same scale of uh, venture capital and agriculture and health and transportation and education and just sort of many, many, many industries where it's not happening? And sort of that sort of sparked the effort to get going. We concentrate on in the areas of what we call food is health, health and agriculture. Uh, And we really are doing two things. One is be a good manager in that. And there's a whole kind of conversation you can be about, you know, how to be a good investment manager in that space. And then the other is to really take the friction out of investing. Most venture capital investing is endowments and foundations. Only 3% of people that can invest in venture capital do. And so our thought was if we can remove some of that friction out of that process, it goes to 6%, we double venture capital. Uh, And so we're, we're, I'd say innovation is better as a motivating theme for us. And uh, there's a lot of capital on the sidelines uh, that could be drawn into this space. And there's a lot of places where innovation is, has, could touch to improve. And, um, make things
0: better. Yeah, it feels like those, you know, they're it's two different goals, but they feel like they're interconnected because, you know, you're you're trying to invest in areas where innovation was underfunded and and not just using the tip the classical or the typical investors, but open up that ability to invest and venture through groups that otherwise may have not either thought to or felt like it was too much of a hurdle. To get into that did did you feel like there was a chicken and an egg type deal did you need to make progress in one to make progress in the other or or did you kind of just think
1: that um i think that there's an order of operation i'm not sure we've got the order of operation right Uh, but i think it is really important we do concentrate on making sure we have customers what does every startup need most people say money we say customers and so we concentrated early on how do we build that early adopter network and we did that particularly in farming of connecting into farmers or wanted to look at new technology so i think that the the connection of entrepreneurs to early adopters is a path towards driving in a very tactical way more innovation i think there's also some education you know my my career has been one as an engineer uh, in at McDonnell Douglas and Boeing, in which I was very involved in extraordinarily complex, deep kind of technology innovation, which sort of taught me you can pretty much build anything. You know, it, not anything, but you can pretty much build anything. So isn't um, it, it,
0: just to just to stop you on that point, isn't that a great lesson? I, don't don't you yeah. think a lot a lot of people go. <laughs> deep into life you know well into their 30s or 40s and and sometimes miss that lesson i i i uh i feel like i was a late bloomer for that fact that of once i found got to the point it's like oh wait if you really set your mind to it and structure it well get the right people you can do a lot you know and it sounds like you had that realization
1: yeah and it was you when you're in a big system like building aerospace there's a certain you know i wondered why there people arrived at nine and left at five. And there was a certain amount of, we're going to do bold stuff. And then there's a certain amount of people that just reliably do the job every day. And that, those two mix actually in a very positive way. So, but, um, so there, that capability, and you just said, a lot of people don't get it. So if you're starting to say, you know, the chal- the challenges we're having in this or that market and people can't figure out how to make it better uh innovation generally lowers the cost of of the better solution and so it makes it uh, good innovation actually is not magic it uh I think some of the bigger venture firms say you know go into markets that already exist that need just need a little bit of improvement and and as much as we talk about cool new things like AI and such, the, you know, the application to uh, our everyday life, incrementally better, actually, times 300 million people is a pretty good market. And so the mundaneness of it uh, is actually a, an advantage. But the but the notion that it can be applied in elsewhere, in other areas, we just... Uh, a series of conversations with some of the leading nutritionists. Uh, they sort of highlighted recently that they didn't know that they only recently themselves discovered that soil health really has a dramatic implication on the amount of, uh, of the nutrition in crops. So here are people that are leading experts in their field, digging it in, like had this blinding flash of the obvious that to some degree we've known, a lot, we've known for some time that if you improve soil health, you improve nutrition and crops. So oddly, there are a lot of the recognition in in some of these industries that they could apply Silicon Valley-like innovation to really take on challenges is is sort of staring them in the face and um, oddly not thought about because it seems too distant. And
0: anyway, yeah. That's a, well, part of what it sounds like I select is built to do is to improve health outcomes by way of food and ag. But where did that where did that drive to improve health outcomes come from? Was it just sort of this obvious thing, like of course we should be doing this, or, or was it something else?
1: Well, I think that system, from a standpoint of at, at one level, our obligation to our investors is to give them a great return, so we want to be in deep markets. So. We spend 1.9 trillion on the healthcare costs of poor nutrition in the United States. That's growing. That's diabetes is a large portion of that cardiovascular disease. A bunch of it, but you know, a bunch of things are driving that. It's a global trend. Um, you know, U.S. exports many things. One of them is global trends like that. Um, and so it's a big market. And so it's a big market with a friction. That's a good place to invest. Uh, it's a systems problem, and so it's intriguing intellectually in that uh, errors made in one area are causing costs in another area. Uh, and it's a fascinating part of just sort of humanity. Uh, you know, the We are in a period that of biology. Uh, late 90s was the era of computers. We're now in, in an era of biology in which we're really CRISPR and, and other technologies. So it's fascinating. So it's a big problem with the market with a fascinating problem and it has an element of humanity to it in terms of you know if if you can live longer than great-grandma great-granddad granddad grandma mom and dad and kids children and such uh, can connect more and that's sort of cool so it's a fascinating area but i think it's it's time is right i mean we're at a point we're in the point of evolution of um, of systems where it's the right time, right place to do it.
0: Yeah, which is really key. You can be too early and have the right idea, but just be too early and it, it's just not going to work out, is it?
1: Yeah, and a fascinating component of this, you know, we we beat ourselves up all the time on, oh, you idiots, why did you do that? But, um, you know, you, we came out of World War II. It really anything about our, our understanding of nutrition, which was probably goes back to like 1930 where we first really understood like how vitamin C affects human health. I mean, so before that we knew there was some amount of nutrition, we had a good sense of it. There's a lot of history about good foods, bad foods. You know, if you go to the Bible and things like that, we had a good sense of of what was good and what was bad. Uh, but really scientifically, In maybe the '30s or the '40s, '30s, we really started to understand like vitamin C and then other vitamins, and then but then as we got into World War II, I think 26 million people died in famine. So if you're uh, a tyrant and you want to control another country, you starve them and they capitulate. Um, You don't even have to shoot at them. So 26 million people died, and then really, the U.S. said, "Well." If everybody can eat and has enough calories, we probably will have less war. And so there was an effort, and you could really look at this as the efforts around the world bank and um and other things of that sort, where we created national international institutions to try to fix some of these problems. We really focused for really fifty years on how do we produce calories at scale, and we did it. and the negative was monoculture the positive was monoculture um the negative was too much fructose The so positive was a lot more corn soy, and wheat and so we got ourselves to the point that famine is less likely we actually on a global basis produce more calories than we need uh they now now we're at a point where it's sort of like okay we've got that figured out and we have less famine maybe we Maybe it's time to really balance nutrition. So instead of dying to forty of starvation, we're living to sixty five and getting diabetes creates a new challenge. And you know, to some degree, there were unforced errors in what we did in the food system. Um, but you know we adapt and uh, and we're off to the races. And so that that drives some of the timing.
0: yeah, and those are problems that we're all sort of waking up to and realizing like, okay, maybe we've over. The pendulum has swung too far one way let's get yeah. it back to let's fine tune this but those are like you said earlier those are complex things I and mean, this is a global system tons of different interworking pieces and so there's a lot of different roles for people to play and you are a fund that's looking for players who have solutions there because you believe that you know unlocking capital from groups who need one access to solve that problem to groups who need that problem because they're overlooked by someone else who's maybe looking for a software solution, overlooking the food or the health supply piece. And that's the role that you guys play. So it sounds, I mean, it, it sounds great to me. I mean, this is one of the reasons why this podcast exists is there's there's a lot of brands doing really worthy uh, work that get overlooked. And so this this is the conversations we love to have. Can you can you tell us a little bit about maybe some of the early years of iSelect of just getting getting started and how you built momentum and how you you know you came to the table with credibility but how did you get that mo- that momentum going uh, on both sides? I
1: was I uh, so we we are an evergreen fund which means we raise money continuously which is I don't recommend anybody do it. it's sort of hell on earth but, <laughs> but we are and I uh, that first million dollars of raise was extraordinarily hard. (laughs) We had nothing. I mean, we had, I I guess, in a sense, we had some credibility, but we had a thesis. We had no portfolio companies. We're raising money. We had to start our sales process. We, we had no track record. Uh, And uh, I think in the first year we raised a million dollars, our biggest year we've raised $70 million. And to some degree, the first year was a hundred times harder than the $70 million year. Um, And so I think it's utter total focus. Uh, It is figuring out what your story is. um, Listening a lot to customers, getting out to customers, getting on the road and, and seeing what they're doing and and customers in our case being investors. I uh, And in some ways, you know, we I think every entrepreneur sort of dreams of going back to those days when they had nothing from the standpoint of just it. It was sort of fun, it's sort of you're, you're setting new, you're setting new challenges for yourself. There's really no script. Um, and it's a fascinating element to discovery. Um, but the early days were, uh, we sort of attracted all the people that saw elements of this problem and were looking for a team to join, and saw an opportunity to, to take their, their expertise and add it. So there's, it's a great time to attract, great people and, uh, well, and get the thing going.
0: Yeah, that's cool. Uh, yeah, I agree about the early days. It's it's like you against the world and you have this vision that other people can't see and you want to build it so they can see it. Um,
1: you also sort of, you know, sometimes I say uh, strong opinions weakly held. So I think that there's there's value at that point of, of having a strong position about what you're trying to do. But if... But get convinced quickly that maybe you're on the wrong track and and get on the right track. Yep. There's the
2: conviction really helps you keep the tune,
1: <laughs> so it's not utter chaos. Uh, but but listening, you know, we're born in two ears, one mouth. So listening to your customers and and sort of realizing you're you're off by a bit um, is important. So.
0: Yep. Well, part of uh, you know, part of the drill is to to find the right portfolio brands to welcome in. And there's been a lot written about how do you evaluate those opportunities. How do you know that you're making a good, a strong investment? Um, is there anything in particular that you look for that maybe isn't like sort of that common advice that you hear from others? Is there something in particular that you really like to hone in on and say, you know, I really like to look at this whenever we're evaluating an opportunity.
2: I,
1: we, we do like, which is probably general conventionalism, we do like strong connectivity to customers. Um, we prefer teams that have sort of a strong technical founder and a strong marketing kind of founder uh, who sort of bring two different games to the table.
2: Um, we, um, different than normal, uh,
0: well, actually I, I'd like to poke in on that just point that you made right there. So technical and marketing, so innovation and distribution, do you think one's harder than the other, or do, is it just that you have adoption, to have both
1: adoption? Well, I always think distribution's harder. Because I, you know, I'm a technology guy. It's like this is I know how to develop
2: stuff, but but getting
1: product management. So I don't know whose side that's on, but product management. There are 100 features I could stick on. What are the 10 features that matter? um, Is more of that that marketing side, I think, of the equation
2: of Hmm.
1: understanding adoption. You know, the way I think of what you're trying to do here is. Um, you know, classical uh, Jeffrey Moore, early adopter customer, who are your referenceable early adopter customers and what system should I design so that they get the tune and then can move it forward and, and that they act as your agents to sell what you're building to the early majority. So having enough understanding of what really matters to them And how you're going to manage through that adoption phase so that your, your marketing costs go down over time instead of having to spend more is just a fascinating area of thought. And that's, I think it's good why, if you've got someone who's really connected to that, to that customer side and can speak cleanly with the the technology development side of the firm, that's just
0: awesome. Um, I think it's endlessly fascinating.
1: Yeah, it's it's hard to find and it's, and surprisingly fewer, I would like to generate, I've been thinking about getting, I've got a couple of folks that internish kind of people who are strong, I mean, people like to do weird projects as I've been trying to build out a project of, uh, let's get all the frictions to adoption, put them in a database and then systematically go through every single one and come up with a best practice on how to fix it and then post it on GitHub so that anybody has access to it. Yeah,
0: that'd be we'll a great framework.
1: Run a script and then just sort of say, these are the things that are in the way of adoption and and uh, speed it up. And really, if you look at the best VC firms that, uh, you know, one thing I've heard from about Mark Andreessen that he used to do when it was a slightly different market is he would go out and to all the, uh, like HP and everybody like that and ask them what technologies do you want to adopt? and then he would invest in those. Hmm. So he sort of precursored his entire investment thesis on what what the CTO was looking for, and then would invest in something and four years later get it bought.
2: Um, But in terms of uh, what we are keen on is,
1: people have got a a customer-centric view um we've gotten a little hung up in you know we do do a lot in agriculture and agriculture does have big production scale uh so there's there's an element of do you know do you have true experience like if you're gonna do precision fermentation do you really have true experience in the area um but i you know that's probably a typical thing that anybody
0: would look for yeah that makes sense do you run into misconceptions um when it comes to food tech, ag tech, or just funding related to those? Are are you in conversations frequently where you have to sort of dispel a myth or maybe reorient the way they're looking at it?
2: Uh, Yes. (laughs) Is there one
0: you'd like to clear up? Is there one you'd be uh, like, I wish people um, knew this?
1: Let's think about this. So uh, luckily, for the most part, with the startups that come to us, that doesn't happen frequently. Um, I, you know, it happens randomly enough that it doesn't really deserve to be noted. But um I have noticed recently that there's some people very passionate in the environmental space, very passionate in the health space, and very passionate in terms of, hey, I want to improve profitability and production and agriculture, who don't seem to get along with the other two. And generally the only way that we can get progress is for all three to sort of get on board with each other. I'm sitting here like, you, you guys are in perfect sync with each other. And I would say disproportionately,
2: I don't think that they,
1: that soil health matters is a big one. So there are a lot of people in nutrition that are slowly, but surely realizing that soil health matters uh, in the nutritional quality of food. And uh, when they realize that they're like, I didn't know this and it makes total sense once they finally sort of figure it out. But, uh, but they didn't go into it. I'd, I'd heard a comment from uh, a leading environmentalist recently that said, when I was first told about this, I just thought it was bunk. And now I, now I really believe it. Um, And I thought I knew everything. Uh, so I think that the, a frustration this is something i learned when i was in grad school um i went to a grad school where it was very merit-based hard to get in and so everybody there was pretty smart and and such and i learned that whenever i started to disagree with one of my fellow classmates that it probably was my fault not theirs and i think in the area specifically in terms of nutrition that um agriculture healthcare. And environmental concerns can actually, there is a clear solution that all three line up for the same purpose. And I would say any any one of those groups at any time that thinks the other one's wrong, they should probably stare at themselves a little bit more. Um, most farmers, when they introduce themselves, will say, "I'm a fourth generation, fifth generation farmer." And when you talk to some of the other groups, they're like, "Well, farmers don't care about the land," which is just how can you be a fifth generation farmer and not care about the land? I mean, so um, I think that the
2: respecting, uh, if you
1: believe, if you're an, an environmental concerns and don't believe farmers care, or if you're a farmer and think environmentalists want to destroy you, or if you're healthcare and want to blame the corn lobby for destroying food, I think it's probably worthwhile to sort of befriend that other crowd. And I think you'll probably find you have more in common
0: than not. Yeah. This tension is one that is, uh, I don't know if interesting is the right word, but, uh, or concerning is the right word. But like you said, I think there's, the Venn diagram lines up substantially and yet, uh, both sides and they are to me, both sides, it's two sides. It's a, it's a, it's a values thing, and it's a framing thing. The way they present, the way they speak, uh, they frame things up in, in a value system that doesn't jive with the other side. And if you can just drill into it and just frame it the way you're messaging, the way you're speaking a little bit differently, everybody's like, well, yeah, of course I agree with that. It's like, okay, well, we're all in agreement then. We all want the same things."
1: The interesting one is... Uh... I've gotten in trouble because I've said we, I, I have no interest whatsoever doing involuntary carbon markets. And I've said that in some of our materials and some people have said, you can't say that out loud, Carter. I'm like, why can't I say that out loud? And it's like, well, because it shows that you're against climate, you know, issues. So, like, why does it show that? Just don't think it's a sustainable solution.
0: Sure. I understand what you're saying.
1: You know, it's a, a Show me
0: another uh, example where people just voluntarily uh, are are taxing themselves. Basically, the
1: the the policy could change at the next election. The payback period is years, so that's a little out of whack. And so, why would I? Why would anybody who's making an investment commitment stick in that long? And why should you say that it's all got to be about personal commitment? How do we get? You really got to get a market now. Recently, Nestle. So for a while, I've sort of both said, I don't think BlackRock's going to stick with their ESG goals and I don't want to be stuck naked. And, you know, BlackRock's now focused on Bitcoin. (laughs) Um, And then uh, Nestle's shift uh, away from net zero in the recent uh, case uh, of suing Delta for, for net zero or all examples. And then in terms of the advocates, Um, some of the advocates would like voluntary markets to go away. And so, but what's the alternative? The alternative is where I would rather have us all been investing. And that is how do we get a system change? I personally believe it is possible to produce food off the farm that is profitable to the farmer, that has greater nutritional density, that has less environmental impact and improves health. The, it, it, exists. it is technically possible to achieve that. And so then my attitude is, if we can get the supply chains aligned, that's good. But something like voluntary markets distracted because somebody says, oh, well, we can, my customers are complaining about this thing. And I can buy them off by saying I'm going to do offsets. And there's there's a limited integrity that. You're taking this market signal of a customer need and basically saying, I'm just going to like put a Band-Aid on that.
0: Yeah, Band-Aid's a good word.
1: And I'm not going to do the hard work. So take somebody like Nestle right now. Nestle says, I'm going to move to insets. So I'm going to internally improve my operations. Okay, who is Nestle going to go to that's a regenerative farmer? Maybe they can build a database, maybe they can get access to the database of who is a regenerative farmer. But then say, okay, that's the people who are regenerative farmers meet one tenth of 1% of the demand I have as Nestle. Okay, who are the ones who are thinking about regenerative practices? is zero chance that anybody's got that database. So now all of a sudden you're like, okay, well, let's solve that problem. Maybe the reason <laughs> why Nestle is not did offsets instead of insets was because they couldn't get access to that information. And maybe the reason why farmers didn't go through the hell of trying to figure out some changes to their practices to meet halfway was because they didn't know that Nestle was out there, so big chicken of the egg, kind of problem. And that's where our innovations can step in and say, look, we can probably divide, develop a supply chain solution here that lets farmers see there's value going down this path, and Nestle sees that there's value to connect those supply chains. And really, because the supply chains have operated in the monoculture kind of world to trying to get calories out for so long, now it's going to make the shift. It's a great opportunity, you know, that disruption is a great opportunity to help for entrepreneurs to step in and sort of accelerate the adoption of the answer so that nestle can answer the question of who can sort of give me semi-regenerative and for farmers to say how can i get some profitability by moving into this realm and
0: yeah so yeah i
1: real stuff that has to happen and and we don't do it
0: yeah people. you uh <laughs> yeah you're you're probably having to say hey you can't say that you're not disagreeing with the why behind it you're just saying i don't know if that's the how or the what that's going yeah. to get us there right and and people are thinking on different timelines right we all have different time horizons in our mind i think it, it to me it's like you remember when uh, redbox came out and they found a really efficient way to get dvds to people i looked at that as like a really brilliant thing for five years like like when that came out i was like for five years this will be a great business uh until streaming takes off and streaming was pretty early Days, but it's like pretty clear that Redbox wasn't going to be a thing after a little bit. That's kind of how I look at some of these things that we're doing right now, and uh, voluntary markets being one of them. Is it'll have it's to me. And you may disagree with this, but to me, it's wave one, and we'll have some learnings that come out of it. So, is it the long term solution? Probably not. Will we learn something in the process of it going on? I hope so, and hopefully, it evolves into something else that's even better in wave two but in the meantime you're saying i'm looking further down the road and i believe that there's solutions that we need to be investing in and making progress on so we can get to a better solution versus a band-aid because the world's full of us trying to medicate the problem why not let's have yeah, some I people it, try to solve it
1: i am perfectly fine with the concept that it has a terminal date and um and i get a little confused as to does it help or hurt but what i can't Hmm. the thing i have a problem with is when somebody accuses me of not caring not taking the issue seriously right In i just just me personally right my world is i'm an engineer you give me a bunch of requirements that need to be met and i'll figure out an efficient way to get there
2: and i really don't i don't really
1: Uh, my personal ethic is not stuck on whether your requirements are right or wrong. I mean, uh, they're ethical concerns, obviously, but they're not. I personally, my role in the world is not to uh, like opine dramatically on that. My personal ethic is okay. Can I take, I'm a middle child. So I like to like if there are fights going on, I like to mediate them, (laughs) but it's okay. You've got some people that think it's important and have these concerns on the environment, You have other people who are concerned about their, their life, their, you know, can I be profitable? You've got other concerns with installed base and you've got all these different kinds of concerns out there. The thing I find fascinating is, can I get, can I meet all of these requirements out of one system?
0: Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting topic. I think everybody who works in anything related to climate, um, is in these types of conversations either as the person who's sort of judging someone for not aligning with what they feel like is moving in the positive direction. Um, I don't know. It's just messy and everybody's trying to figure out what's the best way to go. And there's so many paths that you could take so many different routes that you here can take. And contrast, there's a role for everybody.
1: Here in contrast is something that's just fascinating uh, to me is in night, late 1940s a bunch of people said to
2: stop world wars we need to
1: build calories at scale and they died before it happened, before it finished I mean but our efforts to change agriculture to increase production went over a 50 year period So I don't know if they had the brilliance to set it up if they set the market up to do that effectively, if but if you think about it, for four hundred thousand years we didn't have that scale, and right. then and then then we turned that scale on. We had we had four hundred thousand years of famine, and in less than forty to fifty years, we essentially there's still famine. I don't want to like, but twenty six million people didn't don't die. It it a dramatic shift, and how in God's name. Did we coordinate markets to do that? A similar thing is economic growth in the United States was three and a half to 4% in the fifties and sixties everywhere across the entire country, because in many ways, it's not, you know, oh, we're coming out of world war II and so on and so forth. But, but really every 50 States was seeing growth in companies and if you could, you could borrow money from the bank easily. Um, there were no things like VCs, there were people that understood risk, there were, there was an opportunity around that. And and there were motivations that basically said, hey, if I take some risk, I can create something good and and progress. And I think as we, I'm not sure we've understood in some of the climate issues, how can we harness that inherent capacity you know we just had the fourth of july and you know fourth of july to me is you know the basis of entrepreneurialism the you know for the we said um life liberty and pursuit of happiness pursuit of happiness was originally life liberty and property and the idea was that means of production was controlled by control of physical assets and that's what Adam Smith said. And, and basically what John Locke said and some others said, which influenced the influenced that phrase and moved Thomas Jefferson from life, liberty, and property to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness is, is that the human capacity to create productivity far exceeds the ability for property to create productivity. Right up until that point, we had all thought that you needed to own all the equipment to get or slaves or whatever to control output and productivity and we had this sort of break point where all of a sudden we started saying no if the human brain has an infinite capacity the individual human brain has the infinite capacity to create productivity for all of society and um and since then entrepreneurs have built on that and really in the 50s we really did that incredibly well, uh, and grew U.S. productivity and and capability, and and solved a lot of challenging problems. And I I think that if we can, on the climate stuff, if we and food stuff and nutrition stuff, we sort of cornered ourselves in one direction where we sort of went off the rails. I think with innovation, we can we can get ourselves back on the rails, and and can and really things do get better every year. As much as it's easy to say they don't, and entrepreneurs are the people that do that.
0: Yeah, you know, at the at the beginning of this conversation, you talked about your background working on these really complex problems that you started to realize, like, hey, we we can actually do this stuff. Like some of this stuff doesn't seem like it's possible until you dig into it, then you find a way. You're working in, like you said, a huge market with huge implications is that is the role that you're playing in that is that one of the more rewarding things about what you do is to be able to like tinker with these like giant problems that have wildly complex systems is that is that like a real hit for you like to to kind of noodle on that every day because it never gets boring i'm sure
1: yes so the unfortunately the ebb and flow of these things change right now and the flows against me but but the i think it is exciting. It's exciting to be able to get to the point that you sort of say, you know, what all these things are actually aligned in the same direction, and not a lot of other people get it. and And to work on that storyline, I will say recently I've not been able to do that, which has been frustrating. But um, I think that the the rewarding part is being able to look back. And you, you look back 10 years or or people pointed out to you, there have been points in my life where a few of us have sort of said, you know, 10 years ago, there were like five of us that had that and we're in that camp and now there are 10,000 taking credit for it, you know, mission accomplished. I mean, I don't, I don't care about the credit part. I care about the fact that it like that new thought gets. So yes, it is. um, I would say on this healthcare thing, it's a tough It's a tough, frustrating problem because I um there are people who have power that don't quite see the other side. You know, and examples like the Ozepic thing, like, okay, uh, we need to hand out Ozepic um because there's no better way to deal with the obesity challenge in the United States. And that that's disappoint that's a disappointment, in as much as the GLP ones and such are amazing innovations it's really a disappointment that we're sort of sloughing ourselves into that corner
0: yeah um, there's a bigger reward to medicate the problem than to fix it and and fixing it takes time and people don't like that
1: yeah soma it's my my uh senior high school we had to write an essay for english that was sort of the pinnacle essay and mine was brave new world and so somas you know just give everybody soma and have them relax and not think about the problem. Um, which is, you know, you know from a healthcare standpoint, might be the right answer to so that people can basically survive, but it's also disappointing that that uh we land in that case, And I really think that you know the unique thing about the United States, that it serves the world in terms of its ability to sort of really encourage freedom of thought and such. Um, it really is our superpower. And it's one that we should just respect that we have um, and use it
0: to yep. drive innovation. Hey everyone, we've learned a lot from this podcast series and we put the good stuff in a handful of PDF frameworks. It's topics like messaging, channel strategy, and market fit. You can grab them at nativedigital.com slash resources.